Welcome to Founders Focus, a podcast made for founders by founders. I'm Scott Case, CEO and co-founder of Upside, and I created Founders Focus to help share free resources and actionable advice. Together, we're building a community for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and founders to come together to tackle today's challenges. This podcast is powered by my awesome team at Upside. Please visit foundersfocus.com to join the live video sessions or to catch up on past topics. I'm excited to introduce our co-host for today, Maria Christopoulos-Catris. Uh, she's the co-founder and CEO of Built In, and it's a home for people who live and work with technology as well as uh, a recruitment platform. Uh, and we're going to be talking about changing attitudes, uh, especially uh, around both candidates and, and employers that have happened uh, kind of through the pandemic. And then as we start to see what's going to stick as we go forward. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Maria to introduce herself, and, uh, and then we'll dive into her journey and um, our theme for today. Hi, everyone. I'm Maria, uh, co-founder and CEO of Built In. As Scott mentioned, it's great to be here. I had a, quite the unconventional path to entrepreneurship, even though it was somehow in my uh, bloodstream, I think, uh, born by entrepreneur parents. Um, but I am headquartered in Chicago. I live in Chicago. I have three beautiful daughters and an awesome husband. Um, that's me. That's awesome. And uh, like most spouses of entrepreneurs, I assume yours is fairly patient. Oh, extremely. extremely. Yes. I, we, we have this internal joke that for the first eight years of built in, I sort of had set his expectations really low that there was a 95% chance of failure. So like, he really like, it was sort of like in the last two years where he's like, wait a second, like what's going on here? And I'm like, nope, nope, 95% chance of failure. That's all you need to know. Like I had just set it so low. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, my, it's my MO though, Scott, right? Like under promise over deliver. Um, it's, it's how I do it with the board, investors, employees. <laughs> just, so it's the best, it's the best approach. Yeah. So you're at the stage though now where, where there's a bit of like nothing to see here uh, going on. Um, well, with that, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your journey? So it sounds like you, uh, you certainly um, stepped into this. And again, you set expectations, but how did you end up being the co-founder and CEO of Built-In? Yeah, absolutely. I'll kind of, um, I'll try to minimize it, but um, basically Long story short, I did the very traditional path out of undergrad. Um, I wanted to start my own business. My dad's like, go work for someone else, which was really good advice at the time, honestly. Um, and so I did what everyone did who was a finance major back in 2000, which is I went and worked for a big five consulting firm. Um, got a lot of my foundational skills there. Uh, spent four years there. Realized I wasn't meant to be there. And I had an amazing mentor who told me to get out and get out fast um, and told me to go pursue my MBA and just get out. <laughs> and that's what you do when you have an awesome mentor who you really trust. Um, you do what they tell you to do. Um, and so that's what I did. I got an MBA Kellogg. The time I was working um, for a hospital system uh, after consulting and about a week into that job, I was like, there's no way I'm going to last here. Um, and I simultaneously was invited to an entrepreneur's event in Chicago and the light bulb just went off and I'm like, I'm starting my own business. And it, you know, that's when my husband first got brought into the fold of, okay, my wife went from, you know, working in this corporate ladder to, you know, kind of not making a lot of money and now she wants to make no money. Um, and, and was really supportive from the beginning. And so long story short, I started my first business, which was just 
it's a long story why I was in any agency, but used my Kellogg students or classmates and teachers uh, to help me formulate that business. Launched it right before I had my first daughter, who's now 13, and sold it just under two years later. Um, realized quickly that I liked it. It gave me the confidence that I could start a business. It told me this is exactly who I meant to be, but it just wasn't going to be a big business. It was a services business. There's a lot out of my control, and I really just wanted to do something big. Um, and so stayed out for about a year and a half. And that's when I really lost my mind. And that's why my husband is very supportive of me working because we both decided at that point that I was meant to be a working mom, not a stay at home mom. Um, everyone's happier that way. And so one of the partners, and this goes to keeping your professional network alive. One of the partners I worked for in my first career in consulting was he was the board president of a nonprofit for tech entrepreneurs in Chicago. And he's like, Maria, I know you're trying to figure out what you want to do next. Why don't you come on this nonprofit it's all these tech CEOs in Chicago and venture capitalists, and you'll figure out what you want to do next. And so that's what I did. So I'm like, sure, pay me $25 an hour and I'll work 20 hours a week and figure out what I want to do next. And that's basically what I did. And so I got to know the whole Chicago tech ecosystem that way. Um, about a year in approached one of my board members um, who was the first investor to say yes to built in and sat on our board for four years, Ellen Carnahan. And she was on the board of the nonprofit. And I said, Ellen, one, I'm, run, I'm done running a nonprofit. I, I can't sit in a room all day and not do much. I'm like, I need to be doing something. And two, I said, I'm sick of everyone complaining about what Chicago's tech community doesn't have. I said, we have capital, we have talent, we have resources, and we have a 20-year history of tech companies being built here. I'm like, the problem is no one's talking about it. Everyone in the Midwest is like head down, heads down, building their businesses, no one's promoting themselves. And so I mapped for her on a PowerPoint slide what I thought almost it looked like a PR engine could look like. Um, and she's like, yes, let's go talk to. And she named all these people in the community. Well, a month later, after we had that lunch, Matt Moog, who's a serial entrepreneur in Chicago, was having pizza and beer in his office one night with a number of entrepreneurs in Chicago. They had met each other through networking and realized like, we need a home for people in startups. Um, and, you know, Made in NYC had just come up on the radar. Um, Accelerate Labs, which is now Techstars Chicago, had just popped up. And so, Matt, in like two hours one night, threw up this Ning platform that was a social networking out of the box platform and invited everyone in his context for distribution to join. Well, I got an invite to join and the light bulb just went off. I'm like, I emailed Matt. I had met him once because he had joined the nonprofit that summer that I was running. And I said, can I come over and learn how to use this? I was just talking to Ellen about the same thing. Like, this is it. This is what you need to do. And the long story short is I stalked him for the next five months. I sent him like an email every other night. Like I probably need to dig them up at some point of like what the strategy should be. I told him to buy every domain globally. I invited 5,000 people out of the, the nonprofits database to join the platform. I was just like a one woman like machine that everyone in Chicago tech should be on this platform. And so that was that. So uh, about like month four comes around and Matt, Troy Hennikoff, who it was, He's still on my board to this day. He um, has invested in four of our five financings, um, led two of them. Troy, Matt, and I were having lunch one day, and Matt's like, okay, I have 100000 in founding sponsorship um, from entrepreneurs in the community who want us to do something with this, um, but I can't run it. I'm running a venture-backed business myself. Like, I need someone to run it, and I sort of raised my hand, and he's like, yeah, that makes sense. You pretty much are running it now, and you're not getting paid. Um, and the rest is history. Troy looked at me and he's like, you've never run a tech company. I'm like, I don't care. I'll figure it out. 
and that was it. And here we are, you know, 10 years later. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a passion project. It, re it really is. That's awesome. I, uh, I think that two things I want to highlight, maybe ask a little bit about one is that is the bridge from, from where you were kind of trying to figure out your next thing, taking on this organization where you were going to get to interact with all of these tech leaders and VCs. And, and then it ended up spinning out an opportunity. How intentional did you see that bridge? Did, did, was it not so much that it would end up creating built-in, but it sounds like you were pretty intentional about wanting to connect with that particular community. I was really intentional. It's a great question. I was intentional about the fact that I wanted to get exposure to more entrepreneurs because even back, back then, Chicago was not a hub for entrepreneurs. It was dominated by the Fortune 500 and financial services, right? And there was a, it was a pretty small community of people in what we called at the time digital tech. Like we had to emphasize digital tech back then because it was like, no, really, this is like online, right? Um, it wasn't a huge community. And so, but what I did know is I wanted to be around entrepreneurs and I just got the bug. It was like, I'd go to these events with the nonprofit and I'm like, this is incredible. These are my people. Like, this is what I want to be doing. And I was also just incredibly passionate about promoting Chicago tech at the time, right? It's, I, I figured, we figured out that there was this model. So like that piece was definitely intentional, like where, but it was really like, people say it's a light bulb moment. And I'm sure Scott, you felt this way at times, like, and others have, but it really was a light bulb moment. I mean, I got that invite and I still remember getting it and being like, this is it. Like, this is it. This is what I, I want to do. And I just became obsessed. And that obsession just hasn't diminished at all over 10 years now. Awesome. I, I'll, I'll point out something else that was that you said that, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what's, what you've observed at Built-In and sort of what you've changed. But uh, one of my companies, my co-founders, uh, wife used to say, you know, I married a lawyer and because he turned into being a founder and just like, I married this lawyer guy, stable job, you know, income. And now I've got this blob. She kind of semi blamed me, but you know, that's another story. Um, so talk a little bit about built in. You started out with this um, really, like you said, PR, you know, get people to know that Chicago companies were doing amazing things. It's expanded to lots of other cities. And one of the things that I think you identified, and, and we see this a lot in entrepreneurial communities, is it often they often talk a lot about capital, but when you actually get to the entrepreneurs, talent and recruiting becomes such an integral part of, of how you build companies. And I think, you know, built in has sort of expanded into that space. Can you just talk a little bit about like how you got there and where you are now in there. And then we'll talk a little bit about how things have shifted over the last year. Yeah, for sure. So what happened with built-in was, and I say like Matt really, like I'm sure his intentions were, this could be a nonprofit. He was doing it as a side thing. It was good for the community. He's very big on promoting um, Chicago's tech community, but I just immediately saw it as something way bigger. And so when I started, it'll be 10 years in May. Um, it was, we would just write, about local tech companies. And then I would get these inbound emails saying, hey, when you wrote about us, like TechCrunch did and VentureBeat did, et cetera, and yet 
we got so much interesting inbound applicants to our jobs when you guys wrote about us. And so, and this kept happening. And so I knew we were onto something in keeping it local and being very definitive about this is for tech. And so it was this protectiveness of the audience that became so important to cultivating this community and like the high concentration of like quality people in it. And then five months after I started, I hired Adam, my co-founder to this day, who leads the growth side of our business, um, who's the brains behind all of our user acquisition and frankly, our, all of our customer acquisition PQLs that we built the business with. Um, and the two of us for like three years, it was the two of us in three markets, and we were really figuring it out. Um, but what happened very early on was we had this thread on the Ning site where people could post open roles. And it became the most frequented part of the site. So within a year, we knew we had to get off the Ning platform onto a platform that could allow us to service like jobs and job slots because it wasn't conducive to get a response a thousand times to this jobs threat. And so that started what I call like the job board. And then in late 2012, we were launching in Colorado. Um, simultaneously, two months later, we launched in LA. And around that time, I very early on, given my experience with the nonprofit world and being a sponsorship revenue business, had no intention of running a sponsorship revenue business anymore. And so really wanted to think about what was a long-term revenue stream for the business. And at the time we hosted really high quality events for these entrepreneurs that they would not pay for because we would get someone to sponsor them. We had these job slots now. And then at the time I had struck a deal with NBC5 Digital where they were interviewing tech CEOs. So I'm like, okay, I'll put it all into a package and they'll pay us for the year. And that was the beginning of our annual recurring revenue model that we have to this day that our inside sales team sells basically um, with iterations obviously along the way. And I, I sold the first like 25 friends and family, I like to call them very early supporters. And then we hired our first salesperson and we went on from there and it evolved into what we did, but we were really ahead of the curve for recruitment. Like our model of utilize content to drive in eyeballs and then figure out how to monetize them. It's not a new model. It just had never been applied to recruitment. And we were the first people to apply it to recruitment um, when we were way before our time. So it took about five, six years in before the market completely turned in our direction where candidates actually began looking for jobs the way they search for airline tickets, search for hotels, restaurant reservations, et cetera. So like it's sort of all, you know, they say luck, timing, execution. It all kind of came to a head a couple of years ago, I'd say about three years ago, where it's like, oh my gosh, this actually works. And we're driving eyeballs that no one else can drive. And so, but for years, it wasn't a known thing. And so people couldn't figure out what we were doing. They were like, wait, you have this content, but you're charging people for jobs. Like, how does it work? And that's what's really crystallized over the last three years. That is kind of the secret sauce to our model. That's awesome. I think, you know, it, it often looks like these things are overnight successes as you're going to create a national brand now, et cetera. And um, yet, you know, 10 years in the making, and it took you seven to get to a place where the penny finally dropped for everybody. And I think for those people who are just starting off on their journey, that's a pretty common story, right? It's not very few businesses come together quickly and magically appear into at scale, uh, so you've been operating this way. You, three years ago, the penny dropped. You had a couple of years of things operating. The pandemic hits, and now 
everybody's moving everywhere and being in Chicago is like, maybe I'll be in Chicago or maybe I'll be in, you know, Telluride. Um, what has shifted for both candidates and employers that, you know, both your observations that built in and then sort of where do you think it goes from here? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So let's talk about the candidates on one hand, right? Um, so candidates pre-COVID were very much like local for a long time reigned king, right? Um, everyone was focused on local. Everyone took a lot of pride in their location in their city that they lived in. Um, that's why our model like really appealed to people because it's, you know, if I want jobs in tech in Boston, I'm just using built in Boston. It's the best site to use, right? Same in New York, Austin, Chicago, Colorado, LA, Austin, et cetera. However, the pandemic hits and now it's overnight, remote roles are getting more applies than local job roles. Um, and we were fortunate, remote had always been on our product roadmap, but we basically accelerated it once COVID hit. And about a month after COVID hit, I wanna say, we released our remote feature, which was huge for the business um, and for our customers, as well as candidates looking at the platforms. But now 50% of the traffic that comes to each local site is actually coming from outside that geography. And in a market like San Francisco, 65% of the traffic comes from outside the market. So people aren't looking in their geo. They want, they want to work where they want to work and they want to work for who they want to work for, right? And so the boundaries are just disappearing. Um, so that was one huge shift. Um, the other huge shift that we're starting to see now is, you know, I thought national was going to be the big move for us this year, right? And like, we were going to cover the entire US by Q4, going from eight geos to full US coverage. Now it's how quick can you be international? And that's what all of our customers are asking, because unemployment for tech is 3% in the US. It's no different than before COVID. And it's going to keep going down because what COVID did from a customer standpoint is it accelerated all these digital transformations that were happening anyways. Um, but you know, when you sign on Whole Foods and Kraft Heinz in Q4 and Ascension Health, right? You have these companies who are not tech companies, but they have to undergo ma massive digital transformations to survive. So guess what? They're now competing with tech companies for the same talent. So competition is just getting worse. Everyone's being forced to go international. And truly for the first time in 10 years, in the last six months, we're increasingly getting requests to be international by our customer base um, because they're having to move hiring abroad. Um, and so there's been a lot of changes from that standpoint. The other biggest changes are just what candidates look for today. Um, you know, a, two years ago, right before COVID, it was, we want work-life balance. And any perk that went under that umbrella was top of mind for candidates. In 2020, as you can imagine, it was remote work, um, right? And that's a big change we've seen. The other thing, a recent uh, DEI survey we did showed that 78% of candidates um, want to know what your DEI initiatives are before accepting a job offer. Um, I had, in, for the first time in 10 years, I've had two candidates in the last three months tell me they're leaving their current employer because they don't have an emphasis on DEI and they don't agree with their DEI practices or numbers. So I think what candidates want from a location and perk standpoint is one thing. What they want from a values and mission and purpose-based standpoint is a whole other thing. And so companies are just being forced in a very good way to focus on things that really matter to candidates today. And it's taking, it's going to be quick for some companies and it's going to take a longer time for others to adapt. I, I think that that acceleration piece is 
is likely to be the theme that we look back on in three or four years to define what's really changed. People, more people were planning to work remotely. Now it's it's a common it's a common option. Commuting was becoming painful for people. So the idea of working from home was already a thing that people were engaged with. I'm curious about how with that shift, the team management leadership of all that is is changing. And, and are you seeing things either with your, you know, with your clients or even with your own team about how you lead a team in an environment where you've got this distributed nature and, and the acceleration of technology all playing out together? Yeah, for sure. Honestly, I think the biggest fundamental difference in leading a team in the last year has just been the people element. Um, you know, leading a team through such insane uncertainty, um, social unrest, a global pandemic, people losing family members, right? Like being isolated for extended periods of time. I don't think anyone anticipated like how much strain that would have on leaders. Um, I consider myself like a pretty high Q leader who spends 90% of every week focused on the people side of things. And it tested me. Like it, it took everything out of me and it still does, right? Um, what I saw this year was like some leaders really struggled um, because of that, um, you know? And so we were troubleshooting a lot of scenarios where we're like, oh my gosh, we have to up-level our managers. Like they need to know how to manage humans, how to speak to them, how to, how to be there for them emotionally, not just, you know, work-wise. And that is something that we've put a lot of emphasis on internally. And I honestly, I, I question how leaders are surviving this year if they don't have high EQ, because there isn't a day that goes by that I'm not either doing a double skip level meeting with someone, talking someone off a ledge, unraveling someone else, coaching one of my directs on a situation they have on their people teams, right? Like it's constant and it is more than I've ever seen before. Um, but it's important because these are your people, right? And it, you know, I always told my board, like without people, there's no business. So <laughs> we start there and that's where it always has to start. And I think that's just been really hard for a lot of people. Yeah, you talked about the people side and this for, for those that are working remotely or distributed, this kind of working through a camera and engaging in that way it's even more difficult because you don't get the same body language or cues that are there. And one of the things that when you talk about DEI, you know, diversity is sort of the mix of people that you have. Equity is, are you treating everybody fairly and consistently? And then the inclusion part, I know you've done some surveys and things, but when we look at that part, certainly in our company, it's one thing to bring in a, um, you know, a person of color to a team that might be dominated by, um, you know, by a, a, a group of white engineers, let's say, and you're trying, and how do you help them feel included and onboarded and, and connect with the team in the best possible way, all doing it through a camera and a piece of glass. I'm curious if any of the surveying or work that you've done has kind of revealed patterns or, um, or opportunities to embrace best practices to help the team be cohesive uh, because building diverse and, and uh, inclusive teams is just much more effective. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's interesting. I've never thought about it as what's the difference via Zoom or in person. To be, I'll, to be honest, 
we've looked at it very holistically and have invested a lot internally. So um, right when COVID hit, we rolled out five new ERGs um, to focus on the inclusion element because we recognize like how exactly to what you're, you just said. You What's just an ERG? So employee resource groups, sorry. Um, and so basically the focus there is to focus on radical inclusion. It's creating homes for people where they can be vulnerable and, you know, talk to people amongst their peers. It's also for allies to get to know them better and understand what's driving it. So we have one for women, we have one for LGBTQ+, we have one for people of color, um, we have one for people of Jewish descent. Um, there's, you know, and they're all employee led. Employees are raising their hands saying, we wanna lead this, this is important to us. And they are drivers of change for us. They're our eyes and ears. We run things by them that we wanna roll out to the entire company. Um, and they hold us accountable to making sure we are consistently focused on inclusion at the company. Um, other things we did is our director of HR, who's a Latinx woman, um, actually is now leading um, our inclusion efforts. And we have a full DEI roadmap. Like this isn't a one and done thing. Um, this isn't a let's talk about it one month, go through some trainings and be done with it. This is a no, We this needs to be on the roadmap, just like every strategic roadmap item we talk about throughout the business, like we want, so she just presented the DEI roadmap for Q2 to the company, you know, last week in our all hands. So it's very quickly become a part of our culture and a commitment from us. Like we have a ways to go. We're really good with the female male ratios, but we're not good with people of color. Like, you know, we're I think 10, 11%, like that's not good. And, and we have a long ways to go. And so the point being is we're not perfect, but we're going to talk about it. We're going to air it out and we're going to be transparent about it because that's going to help us do better. And so um, those are our commitments. And like I said, I mean, candidates, the, the most beautiful part of all of this is candidates are demanding it, but candidates are also taking themselves out of the running because of it. We actually had a candidate fairly recently who asked a question to our director of talent and said, you know, I noticed this picture. Um, I just want to be clear. My beliefs are very different. And I want to know if I would belong at a company like this. And it was pretty eye-opening for me. That was the first time because our team is extremely inclusive. And when that came up, I was, I was a little taken aback, but we, it allowed us to have a very frank conversation to say, this is our culture. And if this is uncomfortable to you, then it's probably not the right place for you. Right. And and so, but I think the more transparent you are, the more you're going to get people self-selecting in or out. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a big part. We've got a, a few questions that have come up on this topic. So uh, I'll let you, we'll, we'll tackle uh, them in order here. So one is, um, and, and we certainly hear this across a lot of employee, employee-led ERGs, um, is that it's kind of a lot of unpaid work with a lot of emotional attachment to it. And you know, how are you tackling that or how do you advise sort of tackling that, that kind of tension from a, a resourcing standpoint? Yeah, it's actually, I mean, listen, our director of HR and inclusion probably has a better handle on it. I have not heard, and I'm sure it would have gotten to me, if anything, we've seen tremendous benefit because each of our ERGs is helping us lead something. And if anything, it gives people something to rally around. And, and so for us, I have not heard from anyone in an ERG, a leader of an ERG or our people team that it's either a distraction or it's consuming too much time or it's causing unrest. Maybe call it our size, call, call it our culture. I don't know. I'm sure at larger companies, they have 
certain issues. Um, but for us, they've honestly been incredibly helpful um, because you know we're not missing anything that is not inclusionary. For instance, like, you know, if someone wants to celebrate a Jewish holiday, like the ERG will actually like host like a cookie making or they'll elevate and make everyone aware that this holiday exists, right? Um, when we wanted to roll out our DEI manifesto, right? We have an ERG to look at it for us from a different lens, right? Like we got feedback for the women's ERG, for instance. Um, they had an X in woman. And what we found out from our one trans employee we have is that that's actually not inclusive to someone who's trans. And so they're cha they changed it back to like woman, right? And so it's actually everything I've heard from my team is how helpful it's been um, in driving change internally versus being a detriment. And do you, do you make it clear that spending time on, on that work is, 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 is a, as a priority relative to the other things in their day job? Like, do you give them the space to say, look, if that's something you're invested in, invest the time and energy in it. And, and leaders and managers are okay with whether that's an extra meeting or changing, taking a half a day to go learn something. Is that sort of baked into your culture? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I again, I don't see, everyone knows that these ERGs exist and that everyone can participate in them. And we, we actually applaud it and encourage it. Um, what you'll see those, we implemented half day Fridays on Fridays. And so what I'll see sometimes is they recently did a movie for Black History Month they started at a 1230 on a Friday because we have half day Fridays um, and that's awesome. Right. And so it was such a great use of everyone's time. Um, it promotes it. So they also have budget now and we've given them small budgets to do things they want to do. Um, so it's really employee led, but I truly feel like it creates a belonging for them. I think I saw in the chat that someone said, what's the goal of these and, and what's the goal of being inclusive. And really our goal is that everyone can show up and be who they are at work. And it's not a different persona and identity than who they are at home, right? So whether you're a parent, whether you're a single mom, whether you're a person of color, whether you're LGBTQ+, right? You're showing up to work just as you are and you're included and you don't feel uncomfortable and you don't feel like you have to be someone else at the office. And that is really important to us. Um, and that is something we, we're really striving for internally. So how do you measure that? Like, what are you doing to capture data that tells you where people, where your team really is, right? And how often are you measuring it? So what are the measures and then how often are you capturing it? So we actually use a tool called Office Vibe. It's very inexpensive. Um, it's very inexpensive for young early startups. I think there's actually like a freemium model to it. Um, but we, it's an employee pulse survey. Um, they, every employee has at least a question a week that they get. And we embed questions in there to get a pulse on inclusivity, management, perks and benefits, safety at work, et cetera. Um, and I get all the results in real time. So I see the results from every single employee. Anytime someone comments, it's all anonymous, but then we also can see it by teams. So we can quickly identify for leaders you know, whether their team scores are lower in certain areas than others and where they need to work on things. It also allows our leaders to issue custom surveys when specific things are going down. Like if one org is having a massive reorg, right? And you want to pulse people anonymously to see how do you feel about it? Like, did I, you know, 
any uncertainty, we can do that through this mechanism. Um, so we do that. We also have a lot of questions in our exit surveys. Um, when, you know, exit interviews, when employees leave the company, um, there's questions embedded there as well. We actually just invested in CultureAmp. So we're going to be switching a little bit to CultureAmp, which is even it's just a more robust tool for pulsing your employee base. Um, but we do it quite often. Um, and we like, we've probably had three return to work surveys go out to our team to pulse them. So it's just this constant, whatever tool you use, it's just this notion of constant feedback, right. And, and really understanding the pulse of your employees and understanding how it differs across your teams, right. Because your tech team might think of things very differently than your marketing team or your sales team. Um, and so hopefully that's helpful. That's great. Thank you. Uh, I want to move on to kind of, uh, I guess, a stepping back again to kind of a broader question. Uh, as you look at the changes you've observed and the next, you know, let's say six, 12, 24 months, what, what do you see as some of the big, the big changes that leaders, founders have to incorporate into their thinking and I, and even their operating mode as leaders? Yeah, honestly, I think the first I've already talked a lot about, but it's, it's very top of mind for me. It's just people need to invest in their EQ. Like if it's not natural, you need to invest in it um, and focus and training and manager trainings and making sure your team really understands people management and how to help people. Um, that is going to become ever more important as we continue to, to navigate uh, these times. The second thing, and I think this hit everyone, right? COVID for many um, was the hardest thing they've ever gone through in their lives, right? Um, I semi joke that I was in training for it. Um, I had a daughter who went through bone marrow failure and had to go through a transplant while I was fundraising one year. So to me, it was sort of like, eh, option B is the norm in my world. So like, just bring it on. Like it was just, you know, it was just one more thing to navigate. But what I realized in going through COVID is the majority of people at our company had never been through anything difficult in their entire lives and it rocked their worlds. And so, you know, being and emphasizing to your teams, and I flat out say this to them, it's like, option A is no longer an option. So just focus on option B, like, and let's, you know, kick, excuse my language, kick the shit out of it. Like it, it, stop worrying about what happened with option A. It's gone. It's not an option. So like, let's focus on B. And so I think that is going to continue to test everyone, like agility, resilience, et cetera. Like that is going to be a huge theme because at the end of the day, like there is still so much uncertainty, right? Um, some companies are like, we're going 100% remote. Some are half, some are this. Two years from now, I don't know if I believe everyone's going to still be remote, right? Um, we, we've been through this before and humans need human interaction. And that's been proven time and again. Like, who knows though? I could be wrong. And so it's this idea that don't get married to any big concept or idea and just be ready to iterate and adjust because I just don't think any of us have those answers right now. And so, you know, when we look at our return to work plans, we're like, okay, we'll roll it out and commit this is till end of year. And then we'll reevaluate based on the data we have at hand. And so I think we just all need to focus on that and just be ready to adjust our plans, adjust our mindset, adjust our thinking and be open to the fact that our plan may not work. Um, and so th that those would be my highlights. 
That's awesome. Well, I want to go back to the to the EQ part because I, I completely agree on the resiliency and and I think the bumpy ride that we're going to head through over the next nine months is going to continue to be bumpy. Who knows what the twists and turns will be? Some some we can probably anticipate, and others we're just going to have to deal with. But on the emotional intelligence piece or the emotional quotient piece, you talked about managers and leaders having the support that they need. Are you actively doing things with with leaders to to kind of train them, support them, you know, kind of coach them through developing that EQ? And then my second question is, are you doing anything with the leadership level that you're recruiting in your business to figure out how to measure a candidate's EQ as part of the hiring process as you bring people leaders into the mix? Yeah, for sure. So twofold. Um, we've just begun focusing a little bit more on it versus it, right now it's a little bit of combat. Like we don't have a leadership coach for our exec team yet. And it's top of mind for me personally. Um, and I'd love to get someone, but in the meantime, our VP of people is actually certified as a coach and she's incredible. And so she's been stepping in and actually doing one-on-one -on -one sessions with a lot of people. As we just went through 360 reviews, it was a great opportunity to do that. Went so far as to actually like help managers and early managers like draft their 360s and role play how they're going to communicate them because that was always one of my biggest fears. It's like, depending on who your manager is, you get read a certain review and, and other people get a lot of emotional support and career pathing and some people don't get any. And so trying to create a little bit of consistency around the 360 process was a focus we had this year. Um, we also started a manager's meeting and we are focused on some level of manager training. So we did a feedback session, like how do you give good feedback to your employees? How do you deliver it? And it was honestly one of the most popular sessions we did this year. And so we're going to invest in doing those once a quarter for managers and up. Um, in terms of your second question from uh, hiring and recruiting, so we actually use a tool called Culture Index, which I'm a huge fan of. Um, people joke that I get paid to promote them, but I don't. Um, and anyone who interviews at the business um, will have to take the Culture Index test. And what it does identify very quickly as we're interviewing candidates is people who may have EQ challenges. Um, you know, if they're low social profiles and they're a 10 in logic, um, we know off the bat. And so we know to ask questions around that. Like, have you been, have you ever been criticized or received feedback that you're very direct? Have you ever offended someone? And like, what do you, and like a lot of times when I ask candidates, like, what's critical feedback they've received. A lot of times they'll say it, they're self-aware enough and they've heard this feedback before. And so then the question becomes, okay, well, what do you do about it? And then you can understand and, and, and decide, okay, is this person experienced enough? They've worked on it enough. They've shown progress, they're cognizant of it, et cetera. Um, and go from there. Another thing I, I personally do, um, I did it, I actually did it yesterday, is I work with any of my directs and managers when they're delivering critical feedback. And so sometimes they'll just draft their talk points and I'll go through knowing that the person, knowing their culture index profile, how they're going to respond to certain things. And we like role play it and we practice it. And so with, you know, one of my uh, VPs who definitely struggled a little bit with it, you know, we would just prep things in advance. And, 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 you know, once they can go through it a couple of times, then it becomes second nature, but they have to want to do it. Right. Um, and so it's that willingness to want to change that matters more than anything. But, you know, I keep telling my team, like, if you guys want to lead big teams, like this is a huge part of it. This is a huge part of it. It's the most important part 
you know, it, it's before in my part, in my mind, it's number one and intelligence and execution is number two because you won't have a team if you can't lead them. Um, and so it, it's something that we will be investing in more and more. That's awesome. Yeah, the, all the leverage is in how well you lead the people, right? Because that's where the that's where the power get, uh, comes from. So this was awesome. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Founders Focus. What did you think? You got any feedback for us? Got a topic that you'd like us to discuss? Or maybe a future co-host? We'd love to hear from you. Just hit me up on LinkedIn at T. Scott Case and uh, join us at foundersfocus.com to stay up to date with the latest episodes and join us live every week at our Founders Focus sessions. Hope to see you there.